where to start with this? Um, you know, when I first read this, um, if I'm honest, there were two feelings that came to mind. Um, the first was shame, and the second was fear. Um, the passage states, you know, if you don't feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, I'll be damned for eternity and not enter heaven. So reading this, I have to say, it made me quite uncomfortable. And a part of me wondered whether actually maybe that was the point. Um, a lot of what Jesus says isn't designed to make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but to challenge us. And it's worth remembering that that challenge comes from a place of love. Just as a mother or a father sets rules for their child to help them be the best that they can be, so God does that for us. So hopefully today I want to address those two feelings of shame and fear. Um, the passage comes kind of just prior to the Last Supper and Jesus' crucifixion. And it's the last of five kind of what are called discourses or groups of talks uh, by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And this one begins with Jesus and the disciples walking through the temple grounds um, and Jesus telling them that the temple is going to be destroyed. And the disciples kind of want to know, you know, when is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? You know, what, how will I know when it's the end? Um, and Jesus kind of talks about this, but actually it seems to me that he quickly turns to what I think he sees as more important. And rather than focusing on the future and the when and the how, across all three of the parables that we've been looking at, he talks about what the disciples should be doing now and in the present. Um, and in all those parables, those present actions impact on the future. Uh, and in Chris's talk, he spoke about preparation. Uh, and too often we can kind of live in the, in the future or the past and forget to live in the here and now. Uh, and actually forgetting that the past can't be changed and the future is so often a product of what we do in the present. So why sheep and goats? Um, why did Jesus use them in this parable? Uh, to understand this, we need to kind of understand uh, sheep aren't quite like they were back in the first century Palestine. Um, nowadays, they're all kind of big, woolly animals, lovely and fluffy, uh, very distinct from goats. Um, but this wasn't always the case. So 2,000 years ago, back in Jesus' day, sheep and goats would have actually looked really quite similar. Uh, today, sheep are the product of thousands of years of specialization. You know, we've bred them to make their wool thicker, uh, make them fatter for us to eat. Um, so the first important point to note is that sheep and goats back then, with all outward appearances, have been the same. And in the same way, to all outward appearances, there's no difference between us as Christians and non-Christians. You know, I can't look at somebody and go, Christian, definitely. Yeah, he's definitely wearing his uh, waistcoat. He's definitely a Christian. <laughs> um, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> um, so if we live the same way and have the same attitudes, what marks us out as different? The character of the animals, however, was quite different. Goats were and still are known to be very independent, stubborn, persistent, and selfish. And while someone would usually own both sheep and goats in a flock, the goats would often be separated out from the sheep because they could be bullying to the other sheep uh, and it could damage the flock as a whole. Uh, and you've got to understand that this colours the parable. It kind of brings it to life for the people back then. Um, it helps them to understand that. 
Jesus' reference here to sheep and goats isn't the first such reference to sheep and goats and judgment in the Bible. Um, so often Jesus makes a reference back to the Old Testament, and this parable is no different. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ezekiel um, chapter 34, verses, starting at verse 4. So now Ezekiel was a prophet during the time in which the Jews were in captivity in Babylon. Um, and in his book, he talks about God's judgment on Israel and the other nations. Uh, and he concludes with a message of hope, proclaiming the faithfulness, faithfulness of God and the future blessings for God's people. And there's so many parallels here with Jesus' teaching that I couldn't really ignore it. So I'm going to read a couple of bits from the New Living Standard Version. Uh, and it starts by stating that it's a message for the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. And it says, verse 4, you have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the broken bones. You've not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Verses 16 to 17, I will search for my lost ones who strayed away and I will bring them safely home again. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them, yes, feed them justice. And as for you, my flock, my people, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another, separating the sheep from the goats. Then verses 20 to 23, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will surely judge between the fat sheep and the scrawny sheep, for you fat sheep push and butt and crowd my sick and hungry flock until they are scattered to distant lands. So I will rescue my flock and they will no longer be abused and destroyed. And I will judge between one sheep and another. And I'll set one shepherd over them. Even my servant David, he will feed them and be a shepherd to them. And it's interesting, as I was kind of listening to the reading just now, um, the wording is really curious because we talk about sheep and goats and much of my talk talks about the differences between sheep and goats. But actually, when you listen to it, he says, I will judge between them and I will put those on my right and those on my left. He doesn't say, I will put the sheep on my right and the goats on my left. I just thought it was a really interesting thing to kind of think of. So uh, just bear that in mind. Um, so the leaders of Israel at the time of Ezekiel's reading gave a regard only for themselves. They were self-centered and greedy, caring for no one else. They hadn't looked after the poor. They hadn't helped the sick or sought out the lost. And the passage in Matthew talks about the actions of those who will and won't be subject to judgment. This passage in Ezekiel talks not just about actions, but about character. A self-centered nature. So what about us? I look at today's society and there's a large focus on standing up for ourselves. And actually, in today's society, I think the goats would have had many characteristics which would be valued. Independence. Sheep are a bit stupid and follow each other. A goat forges its own path and goes where it will. Don't let others tell you what to do. You decide what's right and which way you should go. Stubborn? Stand up for your rights. If others push you, push back. Push your way to the top. It's all about you and what you deserve. And we can often feel like that that society owes us, that the system isn't fair. But what about sheep? Sheep are more mild-mannered, more likely to turn the other cheek, perhaps. They don't follow their own path. They follow the shepherd. And whilst I was kind of reading up on this, there was one article which spoke about the difference between uh, a shepherd and a goat herd. Um, often we kind of interuse the words of shepherd, and shepherd will refer to somebody who looks after sheep and goats, but... Um, 
it said that a shepherd looks, leads the flock of sheep and the sheep follow. A goat herd, on the other hand, follows behind the goats. And Jesus came to be the good shepherd to show us how to live and lead the way. So there's a challenge just in that. We have a choice. What's our character and what do our actions set us out as? Are we going to be on the right or are we going to be on the left? Do we follow Christ like a sheep or do we really like to follow our own path? Preferring to return to the flock and the safety of the shepherd when it suits us. And what about actions? When I look at the actions referred to in the passage, I try to think about what it would have meant back then. You know, we see in the Bible how people might have responded uh, in a number of the passages. Perhaps the most obvious is that of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite. Rather than helping the man on the road, the religious leaders walked on by on the other side. They were very focused on purity, not becoming unclean through others. So the concept of visiting people in prison, which back in Jesus' day would most likely have been unbearable, filthy conditions, speaking to sinners, people who, you know, were justly imprisoned for what they'd done wrong. I can imagine, you know, the, the Pharisees of the time would have been absolutely mortified by the concept of visiting these people in prison. Likewise, visiting the sick would have incurred the risk of becoming unclean themselves or becoming sick. In fact, the only areas which would have been socially acceptable in those days might have been to feed the needy. But even in this, the attitude of the Pharisees was wrong. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Take care, don't do your deeds publicly to be admired, because then you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give a gift to someone in need, don't shout about it as the hypocrites do. Verses 3 and 4, But when you give to someone, don't tell your left hand what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in secret, and your Father who knows all secrets will reward you. So how about us? Uh, And this ties in with what Chris was talking about last week. He talked about whether we can make use of Advent to make time to look within, to reboot our relationship with God. He asked the question as to whether Advent is a time to, as it were, kickstart a new business venture with God. How does God want to use the talents God has given us, and where are we in our partnership with God? Now, if I'm brutally honest, I need to confess that on the basis of this passage, I'm in line for judgment. You know, I travel up to London every week, every day for work, and I'm faced with the issue of homelessness, people living in the streets. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I'm not completely heartless. You know, I, I do help at times, but how often have I walked past... How often have we walked past those in need? When we've been prompted by the Holy Spirit to say or do something, and we haven't done it. So I can't in all honesty portray myself as someone who always shows great compassion for those in need. You know, if Jesus were walking by my side, I'd feel ashamed of who I am sometimes. You know, I read for the Benedictine monks, monks um, they view and treat all those who they meet who are in need as if they were Christ in a very literal sense. It comes directly from our passage when it says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And it's a really challenging thought to see each person in need as if they were Jesus himself. Would we really walk past 
I know there are some, particularly more recently when I was looking at this, who interpret the particular part of the passage to mean that it only refers to other Christians. In my Bible, it translates the word adelphos, meaning brothers, as brothers and sisters. But when you look at the other passages in the Bible and you look at the context, parable of the Good Samaritan is a good example, it's quite clear that God wants us to care for one another regardless of whether they have the same faith, nationality, ethnicity, beliefs, same background. And, you know, interpreting it more narrowly, to me, just feels like an abdication of responsibility. But it's not just the homeless. You know, when we look at the world around us, and, and I kind of thought, you know, if Jesus were giving this today, this talk, you know, what would he say? Who would he talk about? Who is it in society today who is needy? It might include the elderly, too often ignored by society to live a life of isolation within a community that actually would have been very different in Jesus' day. Refugees, they can often be the outcasts of society. You know, I, I was thinking I love the work of life and soul because it, care, it shows care for those in our society. Care for those who others don't love or don't show that love towards. And it's living out some of this passage. And for each of us, the challenges and opportunities put in front of us will be different. Some have extremely demanding jobs. Some have a family to manage and care for. Some are already involved full-time in charitable work. But I don't believe that for any of us, there isn't more that we could do. Uh, my wife, Jessica, bought a book recently called Have You Filled a Bucket Today? Uh, I'd definitely recommend it for children. It's a book uh, for children which talks about day-to-day -day mental well-being. It talks about us having a bucket which holds all the good feelings and thoughts about yourself. And when others are mean or unkind to us, they take some of this from our bucket and we feel empty and we feel sad. And when we're mean to others, we empty the buckets of others. But actually when we're kind, not only do we fill the buckets of others, but we fill our own buckets. And I don't know about you, but whilst I can genuinely be terrible at stepping out of my own little bubble of thinking about myself... When I do and I think about others, I'm, I'm often truly blessed. And I know it can sometimes be difficult and not always rewarding. Um, recently, uh, Jessica and I were out in town and um, I'd gone to uh, go and look at something with the children. And uh, my wife was decided to give a couple of pounds to uh, a homeless guy. And, you know, she only had two pounds, so she gave it to him. And he was like, no, 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 five, five, give me five. And she's like, I've only got two. And she's like, five, five. And you know what? That can be really frustrating, you know? And sometimes we can be really cynical about giving. And I know that for myself, I'm often really cynical. Are these people doing it? Are they actually earning loads of money and I'm just kind of giving to somebody who doesn't really need it? But I want to warn against that. It's not giving for our own benefit. And, and actually, God calls us to do this. God wants us to care for these people. And... You know, sometimes listening to the prompting of his spirit and giving can cost us. And that's not something that we should shy away from. You know, showing love to others can be costly. Let's not be like the Pharisees, you know, giving what we can easily afford. Look at the parable of the rich man, uh, the rich men who gave out of their wealth. And then there was the woman who gave just the two copper coins, but it was all that she had. And I don't know about you, but I can often have a tendency to give when it's easy, 
God doesn't call us to do that. And it doesn't have to be money. You know, someone once said to me that, you know, what homeless people sometimes want more than money is to be noticed and acknowledged. It's incredibly hurtful to be ignored and for people to pretend you're just not there, just to walk past. You know, I, I, I once sat down with a homeless guy in London and spent a bit of time with him. Um, I'm not sure he was all there mentally. Um, and I certainly felt uncomfortable sitting on the street with him. But for him, he clearly valued that attention. So much so that he gave me some of his whiskey, which must have been very precious to him, and insisted that I drink a couple of capfuls. <laughs> but <laughs> you know what? In, in so many ways, I think I didn't help this guy at all. I didn't give him any money or anything. But actually, you know what? I did give him something. I gave him some time. I showed him that somebody cared about him. And I think God would have been pleased with me. So I come here before you all today to say that I often feel ashamed. I fall well short of what God asked me to do in this passage. And many other passages in the Bible. Which brings me to the second question of judgment. Um, because according to the passage, more likely than not, I'm going to be on the left. Now, you know, when I kind of do these talks, I try to think of the questions that, that I have in my heart, you know, when I read a passage. Um, but the key question for me was, does this mean that if I don't do these things, I won't go to heaven? Because that makes me fearful. So to examine this question, it's really, again, important to look at the, not the passage in isolation, but what else the Bible teaches. The danger is we take one particular text and apply it without understanding what the rest of the Bible teaches, and we can miss the true meaning. So I wanted to take a look at a couple of other passages in the Bible which talk about judgment. Earlier on in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, Jesus talks about the Ten Commandments. You've heard that the law of Moses says, do not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you're angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. <laughs> Uh, we've already mentioned the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 25. It started with the question of, what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus asked the man what the law stated, and he said to love, the God, love your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus went on to explain who his neighbor was. Chapter 19, Jesus speaks to the rich man who's... Um, and when I read these passages, you know, my heart falls because I know I'm not perfect. I don't always love my neighbor as myself. I've been angry. And sadly, I, I, show, I often show more love for other things than I do for God. But fortunately, I'm not the only one. You know, following the encounter with the rich man um, in Matthew verses 25, 26, the disciples were astounded and said, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Romans 3 verse 20 says, for no one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what his law commands. For the more we know God's law, the clearer it becomes that we aren't obeying it. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. So the reality is that we all fall subject to God's judgment for one reason or another. 
that the good news? The good news is that Jesus commanded us to share with others that following that judgment, when that sentence is due to be pronounced, Jesus himself will step up and take our place. He will say that he has already paid the price of that judgment for us. We're not exempt from judgment. Rather, we exempt from the price of that judgment. And continuing that passage of falling short of the glory of God, Romans 3 verses 24 to 25 says, Yet now God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus who has freed us by taking away our sins. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment, not the judgment, for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. So why tell this parable in the first place? Well, you know, I believe that Jesus is giving guidance to his disciples on how to live our lives. You know, he's setting out the actions that please God. And that this is what we should aspire to do in our lives, to please God. You know, when we become Christians and we say, God, I want to follow you. I want to please him. The Christian life is a challenge. You know, we are certain of our salvation but I do believe we will stand before God to account for our actions. Romans 14 verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. I want to be told, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be told, when I was hungry, you fed me. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So don't focus on the judgment. For if you have accepted Christ, you are saved by his grace. Rather, focus on what God is asking you today, tomorrow and next week. What are those good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, for me to do? As Chris said, you know, use this Advent to consider how God wants you to use your talents. We don't have to be rich. We don't have to have a huge amount of free time. We should care, though. We should make an effort. At this Christmas time, there's so many lonely and needy people. And don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be scared of being made unclean. Speak to the old lady who lives next door who never gets visitors. Take time to listen to the homeless man. If God calls you, visit those in prison. Do something, but don't do nothing. And I want to leave you with a verse from John's Gospel. John 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. Father God, I just, uh, we just stand here before you this morning, God, knowing that we all fall short. I know that for myself, God, I fall short regularly. I pray for forgiveness from you, God. I know that when we accept you, you come to stand in our place so that We don't receive that punishment, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't accepted you, that they would just 
open their hearts to you. And I pray for those of us who, who have accepted you, Lord. I pray that we would just be touched by your spirit. That you would speak to us about what you want us to do on a daily basis, God. That we would be filled with a heart for you, with compassion, God. For those around us, those in our world around us. At this Christmas time, God. So many who are lonely and in need. In your name. Amen.